What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 111 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have learned to lead with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, I am so honored you took time out of your crazy schedule to jump on with us today. Today, you get to meet a guy that a year ago didn't even know. But over the course of this past year, I've been able to spend some time with him on this podcast and also spend some time being a guest on his podcast. His name is Pastor Rusty George. He leads an incredible church of over 6,000 people every weekend in Southern California. He hosts the popular Leading Simple with Rusty George podcast. So good, so practical, so on point. He's got a brand new book out called After Amen, talking about his leadership journey, not just in life, but in prayer and how prayer is a part of all of our lives if we let it be. But even more than that, Rusty's just a good guy, so nice. So kind. You can tell how much he loves his family, how much he loves his church. And boy, you can tell. You can spend five minutes with Rusty and learn he's a great leader. I think you are going to really get something out of this. So I know that many of you, you take notes in your in your uh, Remarkable or on your iPad, or maybe you thumb them in your phone or write them on a piece of paper. Ever how you're taking notes today, make sure you've got something out to write with, because this is going to be one that you're going to want to keep what you learn. So I want you to pull up a chair, and I want you to listen in to my conversation with Pastor Rusty George. Well, Rusty, it is an honor to have you on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for letting me be on the uh, on the show. I feel like I'm a, a longtime listener, first time caller. So uh, it's it's uh, it's great to be here. Which shows you don't have enough to do. That's what that, that's what that would, that's what that would show. So here you are, pastoring a phenomenal church out in California. But that's not where you grew up. California isn't home for you. Take everybody back to your roots and where you came from. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, outside of Wichita, Kansas. Um, and I had a great upbringing there. My parents started taking me to church when I was young, fell in love with ministry, had a, you know kind of a great experience with a youth pastor there, which led me to a Bible college in Missouri, uh, Ozark Christian College. And then that led me to a church uh, when I graduated in Lexington, Kentucky. So that's, uh, for those who are sports fans, that is the home of Big Blue Nation, the uh, the Wildcats, and the sun rises and sets on Wildcat basketball. So uh, I loved it because I'm a huge sports guy, and uh, my wife and I had a great run there of about nine years. And then we got this call from this church out in Valencia, California, which is just north of Los Angeles, 
And, you know, when you're from the Midwest, California is a place you visit, not a place you live. (laughs) Uh, And so I thought, "Uh, there's no way we're doing that. But I said what all pastors say, and that is, I'll pray about it. And that was uh, apparently the wrong thing to do because now we've been out here 17 years. So you, it's beginning to feel like You actually did. Home. You actually did pray about it. And then I it got actually you. did. That's right. That's right. So my people out here still think I have a Southern accent because of my time in Kentucky. My wife and I can still say y'all with the best of them, but uh, we still eat a lot of Chick-fil-A and uh, we're loving it out here, even though we uh, are far from home. I love that. What was it? So now, man, you've been leading, you said 17 years out there, leading a fun, one of the one of America's greatest churches. What did your parents put in you that you today, their deposits they put in when you were a little boy growing up in Wichita and growing up in Oklahoma, they didn't think a lot about it. They were raising you right. What were the things, what were some deposits they made into you as a young man you are living out today? Wow, that's a great question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. I think of two things. One, they were first-generation Christians. You know, they they had did not grow up in a Christian home, but they were each on their second marriage when they met each other. And I came along, and they realized, hey, we're we're over our skis on this one. So let's let's go to church. And they just dove all in. They didn't know any different. So we were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And it was non-negotiable. Even though I played basketball, if practice was on Wednesday night, I missed practice. Uh, if games were, you know, at a time when there was a church event, I missed the game. It was just, I learned quickly that church was the most important thing. Mm. And though there were things that weren't perfect about my home church, it was that repetition that really, really impacted me. And, you know, all sports guys know it's all about muscle memory, right? That's right. It's about uh, the perfect practice makes the perfect uh, outing. So, it was just that constantly being in church, it was non-negotiable that mattered. The second thing was the consistency of my dad. Um, my dad never missed dinner. He was home every night. And there were jobs he was uh, he was offered where he could have traveled more, would have been more pay, but he turned them down. And he did not miss a baseball game of mine or a basketball game. He was home every night for dinner. Uh, he was not what I would consider to be you know, the spiritual giant, he wasn't leading us in Bible studies and prayer time and all that, but it was his consistency that taught me so much. And then even playing sports, um, he, even though he was a football guy, I wasn't really built for football, um, uh, unless I was a wide receiver, I guess, but it was more about basketball and baseball for me. And so he, he flexed towards that mm. and he would learn it. He'd watch it with me. We'd play catch in the backyard. And then anything I started, uh, I didn't have to do forever, but I, <clears throat> I couldn't quit. Uh, so it was just that discipline, uh, we're going to stick this out and this is who we are. And, uh, I, those are traits that I still, still pull from. I love that because I think as parents and your parent now, as parents, we're making deposits daily when we're, we're parenting for the long term, but really living for the short term. But those things, boy, that consistency of being somewhere 17 years when it would be much easier to have been there seven and bagged it and headed somewhere else when things got tough. But yet that consistency your parents taught you, that's a, that's a really, that is a really big thing. When did the pastor bug bite you? When did that call that tap go on your shoulder that this is the pathway that was for you? Well, I'm a bit of a strange case in that one because it happened young. Uh, Mm. second grade is the earliest I can think of because I enjoyed going into the adult service and watching 
our lead pastor preach. He was so good. He was such a, a, a wordsmith and a master storyteller. And I remember he would always close his sermon with some tearjerker of a story, right? And I'd see my dad take his glasses off and wipe his eyes, you know, and just almost the theatrics of it made me like just compelled by that. Huh. And I thought, boy, I, I think I could, I would, I could do that. I think I'd want to do that. And, you know, just growing up, I was a storyteller as a kid and, you know, it just, my mom would always read stories and all. So it's just that storytelling idea caught my attention. And then when I got, you know, in a junior high and high school, I had great youth pastors that gave me opportunities to teach even in a, you know, elementary school uh, kids and nursing homes would go and work the nursing home circuit on uh, Sunday afternoons. And uh, it was, um, it was just working out a lot of that discovering there's a giftedness here. I really should pursue. That is so good. So you get into college, graduate, and you said you moved to Lexington. Lexington, And while you were there, you met a very influential person in your life, Mike Bro. And I remember, I've never met him, heard about him a million times. He's got, he's got like the Shashevsky coaching tree. He's got a tree of guys. What was it he modeled for you? as a young pastor, because I think in every industry, there are those guys, everybody wants to play for everybody wants to work for. What was it that Mike did that so affected you that makes you good today? Um, I up until that point, every pastor I knew um, had a an air of perfection. Mm. They they wore a suit, they carried a 50 pound Bible, they preached perfectly. Um, and, and they were great. And I respect that bro came in as the reluctant leader. He was the guy in the shorts and the, the, the sweatshirt and the aw shucks mentality. And he actually taught me how to care for people far from God. I realized when he got there, I didn't even know any unchurched people. Wow. And he showed me how to um, not just connect with unchurched people, but preach to them as if they're in the audience. And when you do that, then they begin to show up. And his ability for conversational teaching uh, and a just a style of leadership, which empowered other people, cheered other people on, and led out of his own weaknesses was huge for me. Because you had a teaching team, right? I mean, there was a little teaching team. What was your What was your main role while you served there in Lexington? Yeah, I had a variety of different roles. I started out with uh, young adult ministry, and then I ended up overseeing, you know, age level department and some, you know, fancy names mega churches come up with, right? <laughs> and then uh, Bro finally tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Hey, would you just start teaching for me once a month?" I said, "Oh my goodness, yeah." And then you know, we talk about my messages and how I can make things a little bit more user friendly for unchurched people. And uh, man, he was so good at that. And then he began to assemble around him two or three other guys too. And I, we had started a Sunday night service we refer to as the 608 to let everybody know it's a little bit different. And it was targeting a younger generation. This was the whole Gen X postmodern kind of uh, time of our lives. And so I would teach that he would teach Sunday morning, then we'd swap time after time. And, and from that came uh, on the teaching team was John Weiss, who's now the lead pastor at Southland Church, and uh, Jim Bergen, who's at Flatirons Church uh, in Colorado. And so we had about one year where we were all together before God started sending us other places. And man, that was a lot of fun. 
So you show up in California, fresh off this incredible experience in Kentucky, learning, growing, being stretched, getting you to put you in different areas. What about being a senior pastor were you maybe not as prepared for as you thought you would be, you know, and I think in every assistant coach's mind, man, when I get the head job, it's going to be like this. And then we soon find out that chair, probably a few things get to that chair that we didn't see coming. What, what were some of those things for you? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I could, I actually talked about this on Sunday. I remember my final two years I was in Lexington. I know I had to be the biggest thorn in my pro side. Because <laughs> I was reading all the books, going to all the conferences, and coming back and saying, we ought to do this. We ought to do this. Why aren't we doing this? And it was easy for me because I, I didn't have to think about offerings and church politics and all that kind of stuff. I had a net. If something didn't work, I scrapped it and started at something new the next week. Mm. And, and Bro was so kind to me during that time. And eventually I left and went out to California, and I tried every one of those ideas, and every one of them bombed. <laughs> and you know for all assistant coaches who finally get their their own program they start thinking oh well i guess this isn't what i thought it was you know mm. and some things work some things don't but i had bro out to speak about three months after i got out here i remember driving him to the airport and i just looked at him and i said dude i'm sorry and i didn't even have to explain he knew and he started laughing <laughs> and he said rusty you never know until you get on the other side of the desk and that is so true. I mean, there is a different level. Uh, there's a different weight you feel when you're responsible for staff. You're responsible for public perception in the community. You're responsible for uh, ties and offerings. Um, responsible for the legacy that has come before you. Uh, and you have to think way in advance while prepping for game day on Sunday. Um, so it's just, and you're in charge now of building culture, which is something I never had to worry about. I could just complain when it wasn't good. That's good. Uh, and now I've got to be the guy that, that orchestrates culture. And for, you know, when I'm an assistant, I just take in information, 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 but I forgot. And I never, never knew when you're the lead guy, it's more about getting rid of information and paring it down to what matters most for who you are, where you are, at what time you're there. That really, really differentiates between a leader and somebody who's just running somebody else's plays, so to speak. You know, in your new book, After Amen, you, you get into the weeds of of prayer. And and I wanna I wanna unpack this a little bit. Um you as a pastor, you show up at a family's house, they've lost a 19-year-old son. And that family looks at you with the question, you said if we prayed, God would answer our prayers. Why did he not answer our prayer about leaving our son here? What's the hardest part of that? So I want to get into that truth, but also as a pastor, to give everybody a little idea of what you deal with, What's that like when that family asks you that question? What are the hard parts of that? The hard part is you feel like you have to be God's attorney. Mm. You have to stand up for him and make sense of what he's chosen to do. And I, I always think back to a great piece of wisdom I got from actually the pastor who was before Mike Bro, a guy who planted the church. He was there 40 years. He's gone, he's gone on to be with Jesus. His name was Wayne Smith. 
And Wayne told me the story of, of a horrible accident that happened out in Kentucky where a, a teenage girl was driving to school, went off the road and was killed. And he showed up at their house with the cops to tell the parents. And he walked that family through the whole thing. And like a year later, the family said to him, Wayne, you know what I appreciate about you that day? He said, what's that? They said, you never told us why. And I think the tendency for a lot of us is to try to explain what God has done, give some kind of theological answer, give some kind of reason. And there's just some things that have no answer. There's just no reason why that we can understand on this side of the desk, right. to use that metaphor. And in those moments, you do feel this weight of having to stand up for God, but God can take care of himself and just to be there and just to walk with them. And another pastor once told me, the only thing people remember from those difficult times is presence and prayer. Mm. You were there, you prayed with them. And that's, that's really what lasts. You become that face for them of, I was so glad you were here. I don't remember what you said, but you were here and you gave me a hug and we got through this together. That's so good. What, what caused you to write this book? What was the burden that, that was that? thorn in your flesh of going, I got to take this and put it on paper. Yeah, I think for me, it was a lot of conversations in the lobby after church, where people would come up to me and they'd, they'd talk about the pain in their life, maybe a, a prodigal child, maybe it was a, a marriage that was going down the, the tubes or whatever. And I would say, you know what, let's pray about that. Or I'll pray for you about that. And they'd look at me like I was crazy. And they'd say, I did pray and nothing happened. And it led me to some of my own questions about prayer. Questions like, if God already knows, why bother? Am I really going to change God's mind? I mean, then you get into all the deep theology of it all. And, you know, what does he do? What's predestined? What's not? All those kind of things. But, you know, at the end of the day, we have people that are in our congregations and even pastors in, in their, their study wondering, did God hear me? Did, is God waiting on me to do something? And so I decided to start looking at the life of Jesus. And when people would come up to him and ask him questions, because these were, in essence, a prayer. Will you heal me? Will you heal my family member? Will you fix this? Will you bring them back from the dead? Whatever it is. And Jesus' answers were never just yes or no. Oh, that's right. Oftentimes they were accompanied with something to do. Go and show yourself to the priest. Go fill up these six water jars. Um, wash your eyes off from the mud I just put on your face, you know? And I began to discover that while Jesus taught us how to pray and told us we should pray, he taught us a lot more about what we should do after we pray. And sometimes the answer to our prayer lies in what we do after we pray. And most of us just, we send a text and we wait for God to respond and we see the three little dots and we think maybe, and then nothing. And we think, well, I must be doing it wrong. Is that a struggle even for you as a pastor? Because I think everybody assumes that, well, I mean, you guys, you're paid for it. You, I mean, this should this should come pretty naturally for you. How, how is it for you? Oh, yes, it is. Because <laughs> you find yourself, you're praying for your church to grow. You're praying to have an influence in the community. And then you hear nothing. You put together months of preparation for a project or you plan six months for Easter and COVID cancels it. <laughs> and you think, wait a second, God, this was supposed to be a good thing. 
you know, Easter was going to be a great day and we were going to baptize a lot of people. And now it's all online. How could you be in this? How could you allow that? You know, there's a, that constant wrestling with God on, on behalf of your own requests, but also on the requests of your people. You know, I tell the story in the book of uh, some <clears throat> friends of mine who had multiple miscarriages. And here, you know, here they were, this incredible Christian couple that wants to welcome a child into their home and raise them in the, the love of God. And, and then you read stories on, you know, online or you see the news about some pregnant teen that goes in the bathroom, has a baby during prom, leaves at the toilet and goes back out and dances. And you think, well, how come God would allow her to have a child who didn't want it? And my friends who desperately want one not to have one. So you're going through all these mental gymnastics of where is God in that? What does God cause? What does God allow? And that's really what I wanted to investigate. What are we supposed to do while we wait? Mm. What is for you, and we'll take it personal, as you wait? Because there's 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 prayers like these for you and your family, like there are for everybody's family. What are the biggest things that you do while you're waiting that keep you moving forward? Because I, I like that principle. It really isn't just what you pray and when you pray. It's after you pray. What are some tips and some personal lessons you say in my own life? I mean, you even tell the story of the dog. It's a great story, by the way, uh, in, in your first chapter. But what are some what are some lessons you've learned while you're waiting that keep you moving forward, not just, oh, I'll just throw it out there like he isn't listening. I'm assuming he's listening, but his answer must not be yes right now. So I'm going to keep moving ahead. What are some things you've done? You know, I think initially I just run through, and this is one of the chapters, run through the checklist. You know, is there anything I'm doing that's short-circuiting my prayers? Um, one of the things I think that's really hindering the church right now, and as we're recording this, we're in the heat of the election season, everyone's so angry and you know you just take five minutes on social media and your blood pressure will go up and everybody's so bitter and offended by everything and i I recall that story where um you know jesus goes back to nazareth and and they were offended at him is what the text says in matthew 13 and he says he was unable to do any miracles there because of their offense I think, man, if there's anything that could short circuit the miracles of God in our life, it's our being offended at something. I think uh, pastor and author John Bevier refers to it as the bait of Satan that we hold on to and we won't let go because we're so offended. And many of us are offended right now through COVID, through the election cycle, through whether your church is open or closed or masks or no masks or whatever. And God certainly doesn't act during those times. So I have to ask myself, am I offended by anything? Am I holding a grudge against anybody? Um, am I harboring unforgiveness towards somebody? Um, is there something in my spirit that's an unconfessed sin I need to, to deal with? Just running through the checklist. But then the other thing, and I, I write about this in the last couple of chapters, is sometimes it's not enough to have faith in Jesus. It, it's more about having the faith of Jesus. Mm. And I remember my first trip to Israel, and they, they take us out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and we're in this garden, and we're seeing where Jesus prayed. And this is where he's crying out to God, saying, if there's another way, if there's another way. And you look across the Kidron Valley, and you can literally see into the city of Jerusalem where the soldiers would have been gathering, where you would have heard the swords clanking together and the torches being lit. Jesus is literally seeing the answer to his prayer is no while he's mm -hmm. praying it. And yet he still has faith in his father. 
I think that is just so compelling for us because we all assume if if God has not answered us, then I must not be passionate enough or I must not be perfect enough. And here's Jesus who's so passionate, he's sweating drops of blood and he's perfect. And yet God still says no. Mm. And Jesus goes ahead because he trusts his father. And sometimes for me, it's just a matter of, I don't know why, but I'm going to have the faith of Jesus, um, even though I don't understand why this is happening. That is, a, that is a fantastic point, the faith in Jesus, but really what we need is the faith of Jesus. As you look back at your Christian journey, how was trust developed? So that trust, that deep, intimate trust you have now compared to the trust you had as an 18-year-old kid who was at Ozark Bible College, how was that trust deepened for Rusty? Through loss. <laughs> Uh, you know, you, you look at the story of the Virginia Cavaliers last year when they won the NCAA tournament. They're still the NCAA champions, right? That's right. That's right. Only ones, only ones to get it a, over a year and a half, <laughs> two years. Uh, they lost the year before. They're the laughing stock of the NCAA tournament because they're the first one seed to lose to a 16 seed. And then they come back and they win. What they learned, they learned through that loss. Mm. And I think everybody who's on, you know, who's listening to this podcast and who's in the sports world knows that you learn so much more through your losses and your victories. And I think for us, um, it was the losses of trying to get a building and every door was closed. It was the losses of close friends moving away. And we had to trust in God rather than our friends. It was the losses of people that I thought were our financial saviors in our church getting mad and leaving and God still provided it was the losses of staff members who either had moral failures or one in fact took his life. And I thought this is the darkest day and I have no idea what's going to happen next. And God walked us through that time. Mm. It's those kind of times. And even through COVID, you know, a lot of churches are really, really struggling right now. A lot of Christians are really struggling right now. Where's God in all this? And why is he allowing this? This will be the thing that we hearken back on and say, I learned how to trust during that mm. time rather than I gave up on my faith during that time. And I think for me, the trust thing, though I'm not fully there, I am where I am today through the loss that I've experienced. You know, I think about that great leader, Sam Chand. I don't know if you've read Leadership Pain, the book, We Only Grow to the Threshold of Our Pain. And I remember the last time he and I were together, I said, what's the greatest pain you've ever experienced? And this was his answer, the one I'm currently in. So I may have torn my knee up before, but if my tooth's hurting, that's the greatest pain I've ever experienced, whatever my current one is. But what we learn is, and I love that principle, we learn to trust. And God is always in the process of getting us to trust. You used a quote in the book from Beth Moore. What if God withholds our desires from us because he knows those desires might cost us? Perhaps we can have a faith that's a far, a faith that a greater yes in process is in process while we live with the no for now. When you hear that statement from Beth Moore, what does it do for you in your faith? Well, I think of a couple things. I think of Garth Brooks, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered <laughs> prayers. 
I mean, that's almost that's almost it's so true, man. Yeah, it, it is. I 100 agree. <laughs> but I also think about just a practical story that played out in our lives, and I tell about this in the book. Uh, when I first got to our church, we were still meeting in a movie theater, and we started looking for land. And uh, they had already been looking for land before I even got there. And every piece of property they looked at, they were told no, 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 no. It wasn't zoned for a church. And then I kind of picked up where they left off and we went through about two years of no's. And one day we got a, we got a no on a building we were trying to get. They said, no, nope, it's not zoned for a church. And I don't know why, because this is kind of out of my character. I just looked at this city official and I said, if not there, then where? Because you keep telling us no. And I don't know why he looked at me and said, huh, well, come to think of it, there is a piece of property that's been rezoned. And we looked at the piece of property and I said, well, that sounds great. I went back and told our board and they said, that's the first piece of property we ever looked at. And it was this really clear indication of God's no's are sometimes not forever. They're just no for now. Mm. And if they had gotten that at the time, they wouldn't have been ready for it. They didn't have the base for it. They didn't know their lead guy was about to leave. Uh, All these different things. But it was like right idea, wrong time. And I think for a lot of us, we, we take the no personally. We take it as God's, you know, disfavor with us when really he could be protecting us from something we never knew was going to happen. That's so good. And that's a lesson. We learn and we go, okay, I think I got it. And then we have to relearn it. <laughs> we, have to, mm-hmm. we have to relearn <laughs> it the next time. He, the answer is right. not what I thought it would be. You know, in your chapter, Align with the Why, you share the story on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is a great, great teaching point. You share that story from the Mount of Transfiguration and what happened when Simon Peter, he wanted to build the three shelters there, but that wasn't God's plan. Unpack that a little bit for folks that may be listening and go, oh yeah, I'm familiar with the story, but but I don't understand exactly how that fits because this is really, really good stuff. Yeah, I love that story. I mean, it's such a strange story. I mean, could you imagine being these guys, they get drug up on the mountain by Jesus and this light comes down from heaven and he's glowing and... I mean, it'd be one thing if we see it. We've seen enough special effects and enough Star Wars movies to go, huh, I've got some kind of context for this. They've seen nothing like this. Jesus is glowing, and suddenly Elijah and Moses show up, and they're like, wow. I mean, I've only known these guys from their baseball cards, and now suddenly here they are. And Peter gets so excited. He says, all right, let's build houses for all three of them. We'll live here forever. He's like we all are on Thursday night at camp, you know. We don't want to ever leave. And I love it because the text says, while he was still speaking, God said, which means <laughs> what Peter is saying is so stupid that God interrupts him, you know? And God says, um, this is my beloved son. And it's this great moment of saying, you're focused on the earthly. I'm focused on the eternal. Mm. And while we get so consumed about the day-to-day and the here and now, this life is but a vapor. And it is so quick. And the things I was been out of shape about a year ago, I don't even remember today. And the things I was upset about 10 years ago, doesn't even matter. And it's these stories that we carry with us that, that, that really, you know, I think it's Stanley in his new book, uh, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, talks about that at the end of the day, our, our experiences will be reduced down to a two-sentence story. So you get to tell a better story. What do you want it to be? I mean, think about high school. We could sum up high school probably in two or three sentences. Right. What do you want that to be? And the same thing is true with every experience in our life. And what, what God was telling these guys was, listen, focus on the eternal, not the earthly. 
And after the resurrection, they finally figured that out. You know, you, you made a, a point in that book, and I think it ties in with it perfectly. You said his answer is always to advance and advance the kingdom of God every time. So yeah. if our answer is no or not now, we've got to know that he's working. Why is it? Why are his answers always tied to the the eternal peace? Why are they not tied to here and now peace, which is what would make us more comfortable? Why are they always a tie, tied to the eternity peace? Yeah, I think our greatest commodity in our life is to be calm and to be comfortable. You think about all of our prayers. God, help everything to work out okay. God, help us to have a good day today. Uh, bless us food to our bodies, you know. <laughs> calm and comfortable, calm and comfortable. And God is seeing this as I am on a rescue mission to bring people back to me. And everything you read from the entire context of the Bible is him taking steps towards that. And God's timeline is so different than ours. Right. I mean, can you imagine waiting 400 years, the people of Israel had to wait and then, you know, before Jesus and then the 40 years in the, the wilderness. And, and we wanted in, you know, in four minutes and this, this process of what God is doing to advance the kingdom. Listen, I, I may not win the state of California for Jesus, but I'm sure hoping I put some kind of a foothold here for the next person to come around and take it a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further. So if we're all a piece in this redemption story, getting a no from God, understanding that there's bigger issues at play uh, only helps us out. The analogy I use a lot of times for married couples is... You know, your first year of marriage, it's like you're on the ground level of the Macy's Day Thanksgiving Parade, or Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, right? And you see everything, and every float is bigger than the next. But every year of marriage, you go up a level in the Macy's building. And by year five, you're looking down going, yeah, that's not a big float. And by, you know, by year 10, you're like, that's nothing. And, you know, your fights you have in, in marriage, they just get more scalable and understandable as you are married longer. The same thing is true in our relationship with God and from the perspective of God, where he sees from and the things that we're freaking out about are really not the bigger issue. There's something else at play and, and he can lead us through that. You know, and, and you have you have some different hats you wear. You lead a great church, but I think I've read enough of you and heard enough of you and know enough of your friends. The greatest thing you lead is your family. And I think mm -hmm. at the end of the day, that's what you want the most. If you could take your two girls, Lindsay and Sydney, and say, here's what I want you to know about prayer, what would it be? If you could boil it down for them so they don't get discouraged and they don't think God's forgotten them and their 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 prayers are just lost in the attic. They never even made it out of the house. What would you want them to know? God is a lot more interested in the relationship than the results. You know, just it's that there was a book years ago. I cannot remember the guy who wrote it. It's called Wasting Time with God. Mm. Just this ability to recognize God is in it for the relationship. He sings over you when you sleep. He walks with you through the darkness, through the valley of the shadow of death. He celebrates with you in your greatest moments. It's not just a genie in a bottle. It's not just a, a list of requests. And if you're good enough, then maybe he's, he's there to talk with all the time. It's a relationship to walk through. Um, yeah, I, I think that's the big thing, that God is God is with you, God is for you. 
he is pursuing you and he is relentless, I think is the way Eugene Peterson used to say it. And that that's the relationship. That's what matters most, more than just this uh, vending machine of God. One of the, and what you do so well, Rusty, in the book is unpacking not only a truth and a principle um, of one of your principles that you teach, but but tying in a biblical truth from it. You do a really great job from the life of Jesus in that. And one of them that you you took out was John the Baptist. And it probably of all the stories in the New Testament is one not everybody knows. People know of John the Baptist. He was Jesus' cousin. He baptized Jesus. They don't know how John the Baptist ended. And you use this, and I, I, I read it, and it's it's probably one of the things I've talked to people about with doubt more than anything else. So John the Baptist, at the end of his day, and he asked Jesus the question, are you the one, but the night before he's beheaded, or should I look for another? Jesus' response to him was interesting. Unpack Jesus' response and why it matters to us in the in the in the formation of prayer. Yeah, I mean, you think about this guy. He spent his life preparing the way for the Lord, and Jesus leaves him in a prison to eventually be beheaded. And John sends word: "Are you really the one? Because I'm stuck here in prison." You know, you're, you're on the speaking tour right now, and I'm stuck here in prison. And, and Jesus just reminds him of the things that, that have been done, the things that he has seen, and the things that were prophesied that have come to fulfill. Even though Jesus doesn't fix his problem, he reminds him of what is clear and what is true, and that and that in the end of the at the end of John the Baptist's life, that was enough to know that his life was not for nothing. He prepared the way for the Lord. And sometimes things don't work out the way we had planned them to, but God is still in this, even if it's not the way we expected. You talk about too, and we'll wrap up with this this question. Always do the next right thing. One mm-hmm. of the best things we can do is the next right thing when we're not getting the answer we want. That's just sort of a, a hanging chad, right? Um, <laughs> what, what is the, how do we know what the next right thing is? And why is that so important to our spiritual development? Yeah. Yeah, I think I draw from the, uh, the theological film Frozen 2, uh, <laughs> where uh, Olaf sings about doing the next right thing. You know, the, the thing that I, um, that I, that I really appreciate even more than Frozen 2 is, is Indiana Jones. And what I love about the third one uh, is here he is on this journey with his, uh, with his father, and they're trying to find the Holy Grail. And his father gets injured, can't go with him, and he has to go find the Grail. And all he has is this little book that his father has been writing notes in to prepare himself to find the Grail. And he goes out there to that great chasm, that great divide, and he can't see across it. And, you know, basically the notes he gets from his dad tell him he has to take a step. And he he trusts not in the, the information in the book or not even in what he can see. He trusts in his dad that he had the right information. And he puts his foot out there and there's a bridge there he couldn't see. 
And I think for a lot of us, we pray these big prayers of what we want. And really the next right thing we already know, it's to love our neighbors. It's to reconcile with somebody who's we've been at odds with. It's to apologize. It's to ask forgiveness. It's, you know, in my case, you pray all week, but you still got to stand up and preach a sermon on Sunday. It's to go visit that person in the hospital. Um, whatever it is, there are good things to do next that oftentimes we, we put aside because we assume that there's a bigger thing out there I should wait on God to do. When he's really waiting on us to get back to, in the words of Vince Lombardi, the blocking and tackling, the X's and O's. And that's when you begin to find where the winds come from. So there'll be there'll be a day that we will all close our eyes here. We'll we'll finish this life up and you won't be pastor rusty anymore. You won't be daddy. You know, you won't be husband. You will be one of his children. You know, and I and I, you know, there's a lot of questions of what heaven exactly will be like, but I have a feel, a feeling we will all have very intimate conversations with Jesus while we're there. <clears throat> He sits down with you and says, Rusty, how do you feel like you connected with me while you lived on earth? What do you pray that our life here helps answer for you there? What would you say? What do you hope you're able to tell him? I hope I'm able to tell him I really did believe that you love me. It took me a long time, but I finally believed it. And I lived out of that relationship rather than trying to earn it. I hope that's evident to him by then. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Rusty. Good stuff. And you know, there's those people you meet at the end of it, you're like, God, they are a sharp leader and they get it. But man, they are so nice. And Rusty definitely fell in that category of phenomenal leader, but incredible in the area of just the ability to be kind while you lead. Man, what a what a great guy. I hope you'll pick up his book after Amen. There are links in our show notes for you to be able to get there. You can go to also a link to find all of his books at uh, PastorRustyGeorge.com. All the links are in the show notes for his uh, social media accounts as well. Thanks again for joining me today. My prayer is that you'll go be the leader that you were created to be in the space and the place that God has put you. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.